you enjoy your service did everyone have a good snow day can you turn me down a little bit daniel because i'm not even preaching yet and i'm about to go hard so uh everybody have a good snow day was it awesome or what yeah i mean i guess by the time service started last week there was almost no snow uh just let me say this real quick we don't love canceling the gathering of the body right like that was just uh, elders talked about it. We decided for your safety. Um, we know we have a bunch of young drivers. Um, I'm not a good driver, so we just said, look, if there's any chance that someone might wreck on their way, let's just cancel it and be uh, careful of that. So um, that's why we did it. So Ezra, but before we get there, let me address one elephant in the room, okay? I'm going to answer a few questions that I know you're already thinking. Um, yes, I got my hair cut. Yes, I'm wearing a sweater to cover my face up so that I look nice. You look at my body, not at my face. Uh, my eyes are up here, though. Um, no, I'm not joining the army. And no, sarcasm towards your haircutter does not end well for you. All right? We clear? Any other questions about my haircut? Yes, it looks fabulous. I'm already aware of that. You don't have to compliment it. It's great. Uh, no, seriously, uh, I was just joking with my haircutter. Like, hey, you know no one ever cuts it short enough in... Challenge accepted. So uh, Woody's does one haircut, evidently. It's this, but uh, my wife, Bree, where's Bree? You like it? All right, forget everyone else. So Ezra, Ch oh, my name's Gabe, by the way. Welcome to the branch. Um, Ezra chapter 9 is where we're going to be, and actually this week we're finishing out the book of Ezra. So we've been teaching Ezra and Nehemiah together um, because they were not separated until the Greek version of the Old Testament. So these two books tell one story that we should, as best we can, as we're talking about it, as we're explaining it, as we're teaching it, um, stay together. And, and Evan reminded me this morning, and I've seen it too, uh, a lot of people, we don't hear the book of Ezra or Nehemiah taught unless it's trying to push like a building campaign, right? Because like they're rebuilding Jerusalem. And, and I made that joke a couple weeks ago. Well, there's a church, and I'm not throwing shade. I'm just telling the truth. Near my house that is in the middle of a building, like they're adding on to the church. And what's on the sign in front of the church? A scripture from Nehemiah. So it's like, yep, that's what people do. Uh, but the book of Ezra and, I, and Ezra and Nehemiah tell this beautiful story. And we've been reading the same paragraph every week just to get our minds around what's happening. That these two books cover three different waves of returning exiles from 538 to 430 BC. But they tell one story. The restoration of God's covenant people according to his word, which they are now called fresh to obey. So if you read this and study that sentence, which isn't in the Bible, it's just uh, a synon, uh, nope, not synonym, that's not it, synopsis. He's been here from day one, and he's always been my helper. Thank you. Uh, the synopsis of this text, and, and here's one word that really kind of holds all of that synopsis together, is the word restoration. That there's a restoration that's taking place within the Jewish people as they're returning from exile. And so when we think about this word restoration or restore, it means to bring back or to reinstate. And we often see this word in Jesus' ministry when he's doing a bunch of healing, right? So um, you can think of the, the man with the withered hand. Scripture says that he restored his hand. Or, or the man that Jesus spit in the, in the dirt and made some mud and rubbed it on the guy's eyes. He restored his eyesight. Or one of my favorite stories from the New Testament was where um, the man, or Jesus restored the man's daughter, the ruler's daughter, back to life. So he literally brought her back to life. Um, he restored her. He brought her back to her current state. And so we see this all throughout the Gospels, that Jesus was in the business of restoration so that he could teach the Gospel. 
So that that opened the door uh, for him to explain who he is, that he is the son of God, that he's came um, to seek and save that which was lost. So restoration never was for the sake of the person, it was for the sake of the gospel. And so we've seen this first wave of uh, Ezra and Zerubbabel come back and rebuild the temple. Um, and now Ezra is coming to rebuild the soul. So there's been a physical rebuilding in Jerusalem. And now Ezra's come back to do a spiritual rebuilding. But I think we can all agree physical is way much easier than spiritual, right? I mean, you can wear some nice clothes. You can come to a gathering like this. You can say the right things. You can worship. You can shake hands. You can smile. You, you can put on a physical act of restoration pretty simply. But for a lot of us, if you've kind of grown up in a church, what we just understood was do this, don't do this, and you'll be good. Follow this list of things to do. Don't do these things, and then you will look like you've been restored. But the actual work of spiritual restoration, getting into our heart, is incredibly difficult. Here's, here's maybe three reasons. One, it is very difficult for you to be real about the sin that is in you. It's very difficult for us to be honest with ourselves about the sin that has gripped us. But once we have, it's really difficult to tape, take a good look at it, to understand it, to see it. Because when the sin has been revealed to us, the last thing that we want to do is acknowledge the sin in our hearts and probably the hardest thing is this, by God's grace, doing something with it. So now that we've recognized that it's sin, we've seen, we've felt the weight of the consequences of the sin, and then we've done something with it, this is an act of spiritual restoration. And biblically, we'd call this word repentance. Uh, this is what's happening, is this idea of repentance. So but let me read two quick definitions for you about repentance from uh, Wayne Grudem from his book, Systematic Theology. And I think they'll be on the screen. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. And he goes on to further explain, repentance, like faith, is an intellectual understanding that sin is wrong, an emotional approval of the teachings of Scripture regarding sin, which is a sorrow for sin and a hatred of it, and a personal decision to turn from it, a renouncing of sin and a decision of the will to forsake it and lead a life of obedience to Christ instead. So this week we're going to take a look at Ezra and he comes back, and he's working on the spiritual restoration of Jerusalem, the spiritual restoration of the chosen people that God has brought out of exile. He's brought back, but there's some spiritual restoration that needs to take place, and it's repentance. I was just going to call the people of Judah to repentance. So we're going to look at it, and then just cards on the table, uh, we're going to have a time at the end for our own repentance. So we're going to wrestle with the text and see what it means for us. So if you go to the bathroom about 30 minutes, I know what's happening. I've got Blake guarded at the door. You're not going to be able to leave during that section, just so you know. Blake, am I kidding? What? I can't hear what he says, but I think he said no. All right. So Ezra, we're going to pick it up in chapter 9, verse 5. So I'm going to read just a little bit of a section. This is Ezra's prayer of repentance. And then we're going to spend some time looking, um, using Grudem's definition of repentance and overlaying it through the text of Ezra chapter 9 and 10 and wrestle with this. And let me just be honest, repentance is not the most comfortable conversation to have. This is why I love the fact that we teach through the books of the Bible, uh, because I, I don't know that I would willingly to say, I'm going to preach a sermon on repentance, because uh, it's heavy, it's weighty, it's hard to go through. If I'm trying to grow a crowd, repentance is not the, the text that I'm going to preach. Uh, but for us teaching line by line through scriptures, uh, it's a good, right thing for us to study this. 
So let's pick it up. Ezra chapter 9. We're going to read verse 5 to verse 15. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. For the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to the captivity, to plundering, to the utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us little reviving in our slavery." For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but he has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the houses of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Verse 10, and now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are now entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the iniquity of the peoples of the land, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanliness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Verse 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds in for evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, has punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you've consumed us, so there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped, and as it is today, behold, we are before you in our guilt, and none can stand before you because of this. So as we start to wrestle through this text together, let's, let's pray and ask God to illuminate this in our hearts. And Father, we are like the people. We are like Ezra. We are uh, walking into grace that you've given us that you provided for us in a way that we don't deserve, that you've given us opportunities, that you've given us grace, that you've given us mercy that, that is no way earned by us. And Father, the way that we've responded to that kindness from you is to disrespect you, is to push you away, is to acknowledge that our ways are better than your ways, that our thoughts are better than your thoughts, that we know better than you. So, Father, as we study, has Ezra taught the people to repent? Father, would you speak into our own hearts this morning? And would you lead us gently to your cross, to forgiveness, to repentance? Father, would we change our mind on how we view the things that you've asked us not to do, that you've commanded us not to do, and the reasoning behind all of that? So, Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for your love, grateful for your mercy. Would you speak to us this morning? Amen. So as you could probably tell just from this prayer of Ezra, uh, he's just down. 
He's downhearted. Um, scripture would use a couple times that he's appalled, which means he's desolate, he's alone. He's by himself. So when, when this news that we're about to get to in a second, when the news of sin broke, his immediate response wasn't to shrug it off. His immediate response wasn't to go, well, that's not my problem. His immediate response was to tear his cloak and fall on his face before God. So he had been there for five months. We've got to understand this. Ezra had been there for five months. And the king of Persia had been very clear to go back and teach the people the law and also to build up court systems, to add some structure based on the scriptures, to add some structure for Jerusalem for them to rule. So he had been there. Uh, he had led the people. He had been teaching for five months. And if you go up to 9-1, we'll see what happened. Chapter 9, verse 1. And after these things had been done, after Ezra had been teaching the law and had, he had redeveloped the systems, the officials approached me. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abomination. So look, this isn't just the average people within Judah, within Jerusalem, right? This is the priest and the Levites have not separated. The ones that he just put in charge, the one that is helping lead the spiritual restoration of Jerusalem, these have not done what God has commanded them to do. Look at verse 2. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, and that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men, have been the foremost. Now, we just have to do a little bit of work here uh, because contextually, this passage and passages like this have been used to uh, be racist, right? That you should not enter marriage. They've been, they've been used to isolate people. They've been used to belittle different races, different ethnicities. This is not the point of the passage. Uh, we talked through Joshua last fall, and we see that as Joshua's going into the promised land, um, God tells them this, hey, when you get in there, kick every single person out. Don't let anyone stay in. And we see this from Deuteronomy 7 because he told them Moses the same thing. He said, kick everyone out. Don't let anyone in because you're too weak and you're going to fall victim to their gods. You're going to fall victim to their idolatry. You cannot handle this. And so Deuteronomy 7, I'm going to read just a part for you. 7.1 puts it this way. That when the Lord your God brings you into the land, you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and Listhu, and the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them completely to destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Verse 3, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods, little g gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will destroy you quickly. So God is telling them, when you go into this promised land, don't intermarry, not because of a racist thing, not because of anything else. It's a religious protection. Do not intermarry, because I promise you, God is saying, I promise you, you will fall victim to their idolatry. They will lead you away from me instead of pushing you towards me. So we see that this ultimately, we read the end of Joshua into the book of Judges. This didn't happen. They didn't kick all of the land of Canaan out. They started to intermarry. And we see the destruction that starts in Judges. And we move into the monarch period, right? We have Saul, and then we have David, and then we go down to Solomon. And in 1 Kings 11, this is how deep it goes. 1 Kings 11, verse 4, or verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. 
from the nations concerning which the Lord said, the people of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, neither shall they be with you. Surely they will turn your hearts away from God. But Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, which is a whole other sermon. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after the other gods, and his heart was not only true to the Lord his God, as the heart was of David his father. So we see the pleas of God, the commands of God. Don't do this because it will lead to your destruction. I'm not lying. I'm not exaggerating. You will fall. And then what do we see happen? Slowly but surely, they start to intermarry, and it gets all the way up to Solomon. And not long after Solomon, Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom, split. Not long after that, the northern kingdom fell. Not long after that, Judah fell. Babylon came in, led them away, exiled them. This is God's punishment on the nation of Israel to not follow the commands that he's clearly said. Again, this is not race. This is not ethnicity. This is religious practices. Don't do this. They will lead your heart astray. But we're all guilty of this, right? Look, we all know that we're going to try to toe the line, get as close to sin as we can without actually falling into it. And this is exactly what they were doing. They weren't taking the word of God serious. And so exile came. The, the Jerusalem, the temple fell. They were led into Babylon, which was taken over by Persia, and they were exiled for 70 years. But God's great mercy saved them, rescued them, brought them back just for them to fall in the exact sin that they had just done. Are we tracking here? God said, don't do this. It's not good for you. They did it. They sinned against him. He punished them, led them into exile. By his grace, brought them back, and they fell right back to the exact sin. Within one generation of the exiles returning to Jerusalem, they'd already fallen back into sin. One generation. And so we see Ezra's prayer. I mean, he's just broken over this. He's broken over this. And here's how it all came about, was that Ezra proclaimed the word of God to them. That's all Ezra was doing. He was teaching the Torah. He was teaching the Pentateuch. He was teaching the laws of God. And as they're listening to this, as they're listening to Ezra teach, they're going, oh no, we messed up. We've messed up. So they come to him. So the first thing that we have to see from repentance is simply this. That repentance is an intellectual understanding that sin is wrong. The repentance is an intellectual understanding that sin is wrong, and we clearly see this on display. That Ezra gets there for five months, he's teaching the laws of God, so much so that the, the leaders of the time come up and say, we have sinned. Now let's just give them for the benefit of the doubt. I think they knew that that was sin. They knew the Jewish history. They knew the understanding. They knew that they were brought out of Egypt, that Joshua led them into the promised land. They knew that Jerusalem had fallen. They'd gone into exile. I just don't think that anyone in this time could go, oh, man, we didn't know. We we didn't know we weren't supposed to intermarry. I'd never heard Deuteronomy 7 before. We just didn't know. I, I don't believe that's true. But let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. Ezra's preaching the law of God, and they come back in and go, we, we, we messed up. So the first step of repentance that we see from Grudem and through this text is an intellectual understanding that sin is wrong. Let me read you one quote from a commentator. There is no greater travesty than the choice to walk away from God so you can embrace a sinful human. 
to forsake the Almighty for one of his creatures who turns you against him, who cannot save you from his judgment, and who can never replace him as God. God is a great treasure and sin the great bankruptcy. To disobey him in this way is worse than turning down clean water so you may drink from a filthy toilet. It is repulsive. So we see what they've done. We can clearly see through the lenses of Scripture that Jerusalem had chosen to worship the created over the creator. That in that moment that they would rather be married, they would rather worship the God of marriage, worship the God of women, than they would be to worship the God Yahweh that has rescued them, that has redeemed them, and that has brought them out of exile, that has literally given them everything they need to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem. And we're about to see as we go into Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of protection around Nehemiah. Yahweh has provided perfectly for them, but they chose to worship the created over the creator. As this commentator said, that's repulsive. That's like turning down clean water to drink from a toilet. But, but that's what they did. So the first thing that we see of repentance is this mindset that that is wrong, that sin is wrong, and they recognize it, and they brought it up to Ezra. So then the next step, based on Grudem, is that once they've recognized sin, they have to have an emotional approval to the teachings of Scripture regarding sin, a sorrow for sin, and a hatred for it. So look at verse, chapter 9, verse 3. And as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled the hair from my head and beard as I sat appalled, as I sat alone, sat desolate. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel, because their faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And then we see his prayer in 5 through 15, which I want to come back to in a second, but skip down to 10 verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confessions, weeping and casting himself down on the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, and they wept bitterly. So we see that they had recognized their sin. But the next step in repentance is just not recognizing it, but having a, a sorrow of sin. Does it, does it affect you? Does it change the way that you view God? Does it change the way you view yourself? And at the beginning, I read the prayer of Ezra, which I think we should all go back and read just a few times today to understand the true sorrow. But let me, let me draw a few conclusions from his prayer real quick, just to notice the sorrow that was within him. First, we have to notice the posture, that he was on his knees, his hands spread in a posture of surrender. So how are we going to know then that we actually feel remorse and sorrow over our sin? And if we look at Ezra, we just look at his posture, that he's laying on the ground, face to the ground, in a posture of surrender. He's not going, uh, yeah, God, I think I sinned. No, he's laying in a posture of surrender. The next thing that we see is his shame. Verse 6 in chapter 9 says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. So when we really get to grasp our sin and recognize it for what it is, there should be a level of sorrow and shame. And his confession, we've got to catch this, his confession was first against God, not against men. 
that they had sinned against men, and there's going to be massive ramifications that we're going to have to get to. But their ultimate sin was not against men, it was against God. Now, I want to, I want to camp out here for just a second because, uh, Lord willing, I'd love to do a massive talk sermon series on this eventually. Because there's a word, and even we just read it in verse 6. As you read the confession, as you read the prayer of Ezra, he never says, them, those, that kind of people. Because we've got to remember, Ezra had not committed this sin, right? Ezra was not intermarried. He had not done the sin that they're having to confess against. But all in his prayer and all through this text, he, we see ours, us. And I think we really need to sit here for a second because we have to understand that we live in a Western individualistic society where it's not my problem, it's on you. I'm going to stand over here. You've got to clean yourself up. You've got to figure yourself out. But in that culture, it was not an individualistic culture. It was, it was a group culture that we just don't necessarily have a context for. But, but if we, as a couple years ago, we preached through Galatians, and one of the things that we clearly see through Galatians is this idea of adoption, that we were adopted into the family. And if God is our Father, then that means that you truly are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's not just that, growing up really conservative Southern Baptist Church, hey, brother. That's not that kind of talk. That's legitimate. We are brothers in the faith. And in Jesus' time, the highest honor, the, the highest responsibility to another person was not your spouse, it was not your parents, it was your siblings. That was the highest responsibility that you had. So when we see Ezra praying, us, ours, he's hurting for the people because he is part of the people. So here's what we have to see. First Corinthians would outline this perfectly for us, that we are one body of a member. We are many members of one body. So when the body hurts, I hurt. When I hurt, the body hurts. But it's so easy for us to go, that's your problem, figure it out, bye. And it's so easy for us, and I honestly think it's just a defense mechanism to make ourselves feel better, to look at, to ridicule, to put other people down that are struggling with sin and not get in the waters with them and say, no, this is ours, this isn't just you. This is us, this isn't just me. So as we look at the prayer of Ezra, He's saying, ours, us, this is our problem now. And Ezra could have easily said, I didn't do it. God's going to smite you. I'm going to go get some coffee. I'm going to get indoors so I can watch the lightning bolts kill all of you, and then I might have a scone or something. It was not the tone of Ezra. He was not guilty of sin, but because those were his brothers and sisters that were, he felt the pain of their sin. But we are so quick just to point fingers. I mean, Matthew 7 speaks very clearly to this, that we are so quick to point out the sawdust in someone else's eye without neglecting the log that's in ours. And some of us really need to feel this weight, that my sin affects you, and that your sin affects me. And if we are the body, if we are the church, that doesn't mean that if there's something wrong here, you just pop smoke, get out of here and go find something else until you find something wrong and then you keep going. That if we are the body, if we're the sons and daughters of God, we're in this together. And Ezra understood that, that this was part of them. They were in it together. And with that being said, the next thing that we see is ownership, that Ezra was not making excuses for the nation's sin. Again, in our Western society, excuses run prevalent. I can explain anything away. I can justify myself. 
Oh, well, that wasn't really, I mean, if you would understand, if you would put yourself in my shoes, if, if you know what was going on, I mean, it, it was the teacher, if you knew the teacher that I had, I mean, if you knew the wife that I had, if you knew the husband I had, if you knew my boss, you would understand why I would have done this and that. If, if you would have been there, Gabe, you would have understood that I was really lonely and like I had no other choice except to marry outside. I knew what God said, but like, but look at from my perspective, I was just, no, Ezra did none of that. There's none of this Western, I'm going to make excuses, I'm going to justify my sin. Ezra said, we did it, and God, we're terrified. We're laying before you. There was zero excuses made in the prayer of Ezra. So when we get to this point, once we recognize that sin is sin, the only way to truly feel sorrow over our sin is to quit making excuses, to take ownership of it. I have sinned before a holy God, and my sin has affected my brothers and sisters. God, have mercy on me. God, forgive me. But we cannot truly repent until we truly take ownership of all of it. And here we even see the fear of God in the prayer of Ezra. He keeps using this word, the remnant, the remnant, the remnant. That we see the first exile out of Egypt had about 600,000 men. So you multiply that for women and children. There was a ton. But here the remnant is all the way down to 50,000 that have remained from exile. And Ezra's prayer is, are you, just, are you going to destroy us all? That you would be a just, right God to just wipe us out. Are you going to do so? I know that's an unpopular thing for us to preach and talk about, is the fear of God, the fear of God. But listen, when we sin before a holy God, we should fear that. Because the consequences could be dire. And the last thing that we see is all throughout this prayer, Ezra had a knowledge of God's steadfast love and mercy. In his prayer, he's going, you've rescued us twice now. You've shown mercy on us. You've shown grace on us. I know that it's possible, God, that you might not destroy us, that you can restore us. So we see in the story of Ezra, in his prayer, in the happenings that's going on, that they've recognized their sin and they feel deep sorrow for their sin. Not just Ezra, but when the people gather together, they're weeping, they're shaking, they understand the seriousness of their sin. And now we get to see, and this is the proof is always in the pudding. Does their life change? So repentance in the New Testament, metanoia, meaning literally change the way you think. So now that we've seen our sin, we've understand the sorrow of our sin. Do we change the way we think? Do we hate that sin? And do we push towards Christ? And this is what we clearly see here. A personal decision to turn from it, a renouncing of sin, and a decision of the will to forsake it and lead a life of obedience to Christ instead. So look with me at chapter 10, verse 2. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and to put those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Verse 4, rise for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose, made the leading priests and the Levites and all of Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Sin leads to separation of God. And here we see that, again, the proof is in the pudding. That you might feel sorrow over your sin, but true prayer, I mean, true repentance always leads to action. 
And here's what we're about to see. Now, again, let me just be honest here. What we're about to go through is a very controversial text. And I don't want us to get too much in the weeds here to miss out on the overarching view of biblical repentance. So here's what they've allowed to do. And they're not starting a new covenant. That language might sound a little strange. They're not starting, they're re-upping the covenant that we already read in Deuteronomy 7, 3-4, where God told them, do not intermarry because they will lead you to destruction. So they're going back to that covenant saying, God told us this. We're going to re-up this covenant. We're going to take serious this covenant. But the process of this meant that they had to divorce their wives, many of those that had children. So, They're just kind of in this really awkward situation. It's almost a, not almost, it is a lesser of two evils. Do we divorce, which we know to be sin, or do we stay living in constant sin every day of our our life? And Deuteronomy 7 says there's going to be, definitely going to be destruction over us because of this sin. So Ezra and the religious leaders just had to sit. They had to wrestle through this. And let me just make two quick observations, and then I want to read a rather long quote to maybe give some framework. Here's two quick observations. Number one, God did not tell them to do this. This was not a descriptive, or this was not prescriptive, this was descriptive. They're just explaining what happened, how they came to the conclusion here. So God remained silent because they were in their sin, and they had to go, okay, which one is worse here? What do we do? Do we divorce or, or do we continue living in sin? And the other side of this, this process took about three months to go through the legal practice of divorce. That there's nothing that says that they could not, if the women would have converted over to um, Christendom, converted over to worshiping Yahweh as their God, there's nothing saying that they would have kicked them out. Again, it's not race, it's not ethnic, it's religious. That these people were going to lead them astray. And we've seen this happen over and over and over again. So we understand Ezra 7.10. He said he was an expert. He was a master in the law of God. So we understand and we trust that Ezra made the right call. But we have to give kind of a framework here. Because where he was standing in redemptive history, and not even just redemptive, where he was standing in history, we have the luxury of Jesus' words. We have the luxury of Paul's words. We can look at divorce a little differently. But what did the Talmud, what did the law say about divorce in the word of God that he had at that moment. Uh, And Robert Charles wrote this in his doctoral dissertation about divorce and remarriage. I think it'll be on the screen. And here's what he says, just to get our minds around it. J.D. McConville states that apart from the passage in Deuteronomy 24, there is no other law concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage in the Old Testament. The practice of divorce is presupposed, and in this practice, the husband had many rights. He initiated the divorce. Correct procedure was necessary in anticipation for the prohibited case, but a general law concerning divorce is by no means seen here. Perhaps the laws were commonly knowledge, and the law in Deuteronomy 24 presupposes divorce proceedings as a normative legal action. This is likely the case, but the issue here is not so much divorce, it is the meaning of marriage and the great evil present when divorce occurs. Divorce wreaks havoc everywhere it goes. The original intention of the Torah is that an inviolable union of marriage, the man must bring his wife happiness, though in some cases this is not possible. 
The law said in Deuteronomy 21, 1-4, and expanded in Genesis 20, reveals the consequences of divorce compounded by its finality. Divorce is a kind of death and is one who of life's moments of ultimate decision. Divorce provides an ending with no possible way to return what might have been. So Ezra didn't walk into this conversation, walk into this lighthearted. Like, oh, what do we do? Do we wreak havoc upon ourselves? Do we call the judgment of God on ourselves? Or do we just divorce? Let's just flip a coin. No, there was lament. There was prayer. There was sorrow. But he had to act on the sin of his people. And the best conclusion that he came to was that he had to uh, lay them through divorce. So we see through sin, and there's a lot there that we, we can talk after if you have some more questions, but, but we th- see through this story that the leaders of Jerusalem, that the people of Jerusalem first saw by the teaching of the law that their sin was exposed. The next thing we see is that because of their sin, they felt the true sorrow of that. That Ezra ripped his beard out. He ripped his, he ripped his clothes. He laid in a position of surrender. We see the people, as the story continues and progresses, standing in the rain, pleading with God to forgive them. We see the sorrow of that. But then we also see the last step, and I would argue the most important step of true repentance, is change. That they changed the way they viewed God. They changed the way they viewed the law of God. And they did what was required of them, which in this case was divorced. They had to make the hard call of that, to send away the women and children. And this was on them. There's consequences. There were ramifications of our sin and repentance. So now, this is when you're not allowed to go to the bathroom. What is this? What can we learn from those practices of Ezra in Jerusalem for us today? And I would argue, let's just go through the same grid Because repentance, and here, I'll end with this in a second, but I think repentance for us is a bad word. No one wants to talk about it. No one wants to be associated with it. But here's what Martin Luther would say. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, calls, or Christ said to repent, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So this isn't just a one-time repentance. That our entire life is going to be a life of repentance. True repentance is a firm in contrast and makes war within the, with the evil that is in us, not for a day or a week, but without end and without intermission, says John Calvin. So lives of Christians should be marked by a life of repentance. If there's sin in you, which I'm just going to go out and take a leap of faith here, there's sin in all of us. If there's sin in us, then repentance must be normative for us as a believer. The repentance isn't a bad thing. It isn't something that we shouldn't talk about. is isn't something that we shouldn't address. It isn't this idea we just want to kind of keep secret. Repentance should mark the lives of a believer, that we should constantly be living day in, day out, like Calvin said, without intermission. Repentance should mark the life of a Christian. So for us, and here's where I just want to get really practical, real personal for us, If repentance first is a little intellectual understanding that sin is wrong, do you have a copy of God's Word? If you don't, can we give one to you? Because we want you to see the words of God. Here's what I don't want. I don't want you to come here, you listen to me or Daniel or Dylan or Peter, any of these guys preach and go, man, I, I fell under conviction because of what the pastor said, but I don't really know what that's rooted in. 
What we desperately want is to point you to Scripture and say, here's what God says, what are we going to do with it? As we read, as we understand, as we study God's Word. So if, if you've not been led to repentance lately, I would argue you have not been reading your Word lately. Because you cannot read the Word of God and constantly feel good about yourself. The Word of God is going to push you towards holiness. The Word of God is going to push you towards sanctification. So we have to understand, we have to get a biblical mindset of what sin is. Sin in the Greek literally means to miss the mark. So we have to understand where is it in our lives that we're missing the mark. And a true sign of a mature believer is constantly being aware of that, not unaware of that. I think here's the mindset that we get to is, man, if I keep pursuing the Lord, if I keep pushing after the Lord, there's going to come a day where I'm going to repent less. No, brothers and sisters, there's going to come a day where you're going to repent more. When you're in the dark, when you're in the shadows, you cannot see yourself. But the closer you walk to the light, which is Jesus Christ, the more your sin will be exposed. So the life of a mature believer is a life of repentance, not a life of an immature believer is a life of repentance. If you're a mature believer in this room, we should be marked by repentance. It should flow out of our mouths quickly and earnestly and sorrowfully. Here's what Spurgeon would say about it. There's no repentance where a man can talk lightly of sin, much less where he can speak tenderly and lovingly of it. I'm just going to read that one more time. This has been the quote that has messed me up this week. There's no repentance where a man can talk lightly of sin, much less where he can speak tenderly and lovingly of it. So church, I, I just got to level with you. If you can read the word of God, and if you can have wise counsel, godly counsel, confronting you of your sin, and you defend that sin, and you speak tenderly and lovingly of that sin, I don't know that you're a believer. And I don't throw those words out lightly. That if our sin does not lead to sorrow, if it leads to justification, making excuses, defending ourselves, the truth of God may not be in you, and you need to be aware of that. Because the consequences of sin are dire. And the first step of repentance is acknowledging that sin is present. And if we can't do that, then I don't know that our hearts have been regenerated. I don't know that you see sin for what sin is. And that is a massive issue that we need to understand. But once we've seen, once we've understand through the word of God, through godly counsel around us, that sin is sin, the next step is an emotional approval of the teachings of Scripture regarding sin. A sorrow or a hatred for it. Now look, I, I'm just, all cards on the table, I'm not a feely guy. right? You've probably seen that up here. I did not really have emotions until I had kids. It was all black and white, crystal clear, right or wrong, let's move on. But the sorrow of our sin we have to understand the weight of it. We have to throw this word in, feel. Do you feel sorrow when you recognize your sin? Do you feel the weight of it, the gravity of it? Does it lead you to a posture of prayer on your face before God? Do you feel it? And I don't want to hyper-spiritualize that we should feel, we should always be feeling. I think that's one of the things that most destroys worship is if we don't feel something during worship, it wasn't genuine worship. That's not true. If we're singing praises to a holy, righteous God, that is worship regardless of how you feel. But your sin should make you feel the weight, the gravity of it. It should 
hurt. It should hurt. A.W. Pink puts it this way. It's not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors. I'll read that one more time. It's not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors. So we can just stand up and talk about the law of God, but if we don't feel the weight when we sin, that we have not moved to the next step of repentance and we should go back and we should understand the law of God. We should understand the word of God. We should understand where we have fallen short in front of a holy and righteous God. So once we understand that sin is sin and intellectual, once we feel it, the sorrow and the weight of sin, the last step of repentance is a personal decision to turn from it renouncing of sin, a decision of the will to forsake it and lead a life of obedience to Christ instead. And if I could just put an issue where I think most of us have a hard time with repentance, it's this one. Because here's what, here's what we do. We understand that we've sinned, and we feel the weight and the sorrow of that sin, but actually having to do something with that, it's a lot easier to hide ourselves. It's a lot easier to recluse within ourselves. It's a lot easier to pretend like no one else saw that, and I'm just going to carry the weight of that on myself. I'm going to figure out what to do with this sin. I'm not going to seek counsel on anyone. Because if we actually did bring this up to the light, if we actually did bring this to a holy, righteous God, what if he just smites us right there? Because most of us probably had that upbringing. That if we did confess our sin to our parents, if we did confess our sin to our teachers, there was no grace, there was no mercy, there was no love. There was just, get out of here. And if there was, if there was forgiveness, it was like, hey, I forgive you, but I don't want to talk to you anymore. And we might have had that experience with our friendships and relationships. Look, bro, I'm not, I'm not mad at you anymore, but I don't want to be friends with you anymore. So, like, we're good. Thanks for repenting. Thanks for bringing this up. Thanks for changing your mind on how you view that sin. But our, but our friendship is over. We, we can't be friends anymore. So we get to this last step of repentance. We have this mental block of how our family has treated us, how our friends have treated us, and we don't want to bring this up to a holy God because he might treat us that way. That if I truly repent of my sins, what's God's going to say? How is he going to treat me? What is he going to do to me? So I would rather sit in my own sorrow than bring it up and risk the consequences of what might happen. And for that, if you have your scriptures, I want you to turn to Luke 15. Because I think if we, get, if we get this part right, if we change our mental capacity to what repentance really is, then repentance will not turn into an awful thing. It will turn into a joyful thing for us. Repentance is a good, right thing of the life of the believer. As you're flipping, Billy Graham puts it this way. The wonderful news is that our Lord is a God of mercy, and he responds to Repentance. Our God is a God of mercy, and he responds to repentance. So if you've recognized the weight of your sin, if you feel the sorrow of your sin, God is a God of mercy that will respond to your sin with mercy, with grace, with love. And we see this perfectly in Luke. So Luke 15, most of us are probably familiar with the story of the prodigal son, right? The, the son goes to his dad and says, hey, look, give me all of my inheritance right now. I'm out. Forget you. Forget my brother. Forget my family. I'm done with this. I want to go crazy. So the father goes, okay. Gives him all of his money. He runs out. He squanders all of it. Scripture doesn't give us a clear depiction of what he does. He just runs out of money. So there's, I don't think that he did all of that, took the inheritance, and did very wise things with his money. Can we just make that assumption? 
Don't think that's what would have happened. So a Jewish boy, Jewish young man, is now having to take care of pigs and eat the food of pigs, which in Jewish, I mean, that's just gross in general. No any pig farmers in here. I love you, grace and peace. But for a Jewish person, having to take care of what they deemed as unclean was the most dishonorable thing that he could do. And in this moment, this young man starts to recognize the fault of his sin. I should have never done that. I should have never treated my father that way. He felt sorrow because of the situation of life that he was in. He felt the sorrow of his sin. And Luke 15, verse 18 puts it this way. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. So in, in this paragraph, in these two verses, we see all of repentance take place. That he recognized his sin, he felt sorrow for his sin, and his sin leads to life change. I'm going to go, I'm going to apologize to my father, I'm going to apologize first and foremost to God, I'm going to say, whatever consequences you give me, I'm taking it. This is biblical repentance we see from the son. But we know the rest of the story. As he gets up and as he's walking home, as he's rehearsing this line over and over and over again, I've sinned against God, I've sinned against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, treat me as a hired servant. I've sinned against God, I've sinned against you, I'm no longer to be called your son, but treat me as a hired servant. As he's repeating this, the father sees him from a long distance. And if we can put ourselves in this situation, what we're most fearful of in repentance is that moment. That when God sees me in my sin, what is he going to do? How is he going to react? Is he going to get up and walk away? We can't handle the rejection of that. For most of us, we'd rather just die in that moment than see the rejection when we're actually repentant and we're coming back and he ignores us. He turns against us because we understand it. We understand the way. I I would too. I I would be mad at myself too. But church, we know the story that the father gets up off of his chair and runs and runs. Jewish men don't run. He hikes up his whatever you call it and runs and greets his son. And as his son starts to say, Father, I'm no longer be worthy to call. Shut up, son. You're home. We're going to throw the massive party. We're going to celebrate. We're going to kill the fattened calf. We're going to rejoice because my son that was dead is now home. He is alive. So when we come back in repentance, it's not that God's going to go, okay, I forgive you, but get out of here. He's throwing a party over us, church. He's rejoicing over us. He's celebrating that we were once dead in our sins, and now we are alive. Let's party. So when we talk about repentance, we're not talking about we've got caught. We need to go try to make these things right. We're talking when we come back to Christ, he's going to celebrate and rejoice over us. So once we start to understand what true repentance look like, we're going to run to the Father because that party is happening every time. When we recognize our sin, when we feel sorry over our sin, and we come back to Christ, it is a party. It is rejoicing and it is celebrating. And if we get that mindset around biblical repentance, then why would we not If God's going to take us in over and over and over again, why would we not run back to Christ when we sin? Why would we not feel the weight of our sin? Why would we not apologize for our sin and come running back to Christ who has redeemed us, who has rescued us, who has saved us? So your sin this morning, 
that you feel sorrow for, and I'm talking to the believers, that you feel sorry for, that you've been carrying the weight of, that you don't want to acknowledge on your own because the fear, the ramifications that might come your way, how different would you treat it if you know that Christ is waiting to come running after you? And the moment you apologize, he's going to throw a party and have a fattened calf killed and celebrate because you are now home. Because you're choosing the life of death and because of repentance, now you've chosen the life of Christ, of joy. Does that start to change the way we view repentance? It should. Now let me ask one question to the unbelievers in the room. Because here's what I know. We have 50 members, and we've done our best to, to vet them in their faith. But there's 150 people in this room. I, I don't know where you are in your faith journey. I, I don't. And I don't want to make the dangerous assumption of assuming that everyone in this room is Christians, because you may not be. We've all heard the testimonies of someone that has grown up in church, that has sat exactly where you're sitting for years, for decades God had never saved them. He had never regenerated their heart. So I'm not going to assume for a second here that you are a believer. But here's what I want to ask. How does that idea of the prodigal son change the way you view repentance? Do you feel like that if you came, if you acknowledge your sin before a holy God, that he would just smite you or he would tolerate you? But do you understand that he would rejoice over you? You understand that he would celebrate that you were once dead in your sins, but now God has made you alive. Ephesians 2 would put it this way. And you were dead. And let me just, if I may be so bold, change the word were, because he's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. But if I'm going to talk to unbelievers, and you are right now in this moment, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you are walking following the course of the world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature our children of wrath like the rest of mankind but God being rich and mercy running down the driveway to rescue and celebrate with you because of the great love which he has loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved church if you repent the message is on the Baptist repent and believe so if you're not yet a believer in this room and there's been something that's holding you back and the Spirit of God is alive in you right now in this moment. Confess your sin and feel the sorrow of that sin. And don't for a second think that God is angry with you, that God is going to send you away. If he is alive in this repentance in you, he is faithful and good to forgive you, to love you, to welcome you into the family of brothers and sisters with God as our Father. This is what biblical repentance looks like. For the believer and the unbeliever. So now what then do we do? As we sit here, Scripture would say, because we're going to take communion, Scripture would say we must examine our hearts before we take communion. We must repent from our sin before we take communion. 
my prayer has been for two weeks now, because I didn't get to preach last week, for two weeks now, that in this moment, God would gently and lovingly bring you face to face with your sin. And for the first time, some of us would feel sorrow for that sin that we've been walking in. And we get to change the way we think about that sin. That that does not lead us to life like we thought it does. That does not lead us to joy like we thought it does. That does not lead us to pleasure like we thought it does. That leads us to death. Only Christ can lead us to joy. Only Christ can lead us to life. Only Christ can lead us to pleasure. So in this moment, would you confess that? Would you repent from that? Would you turn from that? Would you change your mind? And as we take communion, we can take it with a full, confessed heart. We've laid our sins before God, and God has came running to us to rescue us. You cannot make the argument that God is not for you, that God doesn't want to rescue you when he sends his only son to die for you. You just can't do it. We can't stand behind that logic or that argument. Because even when we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And he's given us a new life. That's what we celebrate through communion. So believers, what is it this morning that we need to repent from? And this will bring consequences, no doubt. There was collateral damage to the people of Judah and Jerusalem having to send these wives and children away. That I'm not saying repentance is going to be like, oh, everything's going to be better. No, it may get worse. But it pleases the heart of the Father to pursue Him and not our own passions. And if you're not yet a believer, why? Why? If God is calling you, if He is wooing you to Himself, repent and believe for there's forgiveness there. So I'm, I'm going to pray, and the communion's going to be open. The elders will be over there to talk, to pray with. But it's a time for us to practice what biblical repentance looks like. We've seen it in the text as we understand the sorrow and the weight of our sin. And we do something with it. We repent. We turn from that. So church, let's pray. Father, would you give us a right framework, a right understanding for what we're doing right now in this moment? Jesus, because the weight of repentance is hard. In a wrong understanding of how you view us when we confess and when we come to you in repentance can damage this whole process. So Father, could we start of repentance with the end in mind? of seeing you run down the long driveway from cutting us off in our rehearsed speech of repentance, for putting the best rings on us, for giving us the best robes, for throwing a party because we are now home. Father, that is what we're walking into. The end result of repentance is that. The end result of repentance is not that you're going to forgive us and forget about us. It's not that you're going to leave us here to figure all of this out on our own. It's not that you're going to forgive us, but, but you're done with us. 
It's not that you even forgive us and say, okay, but don't ever let it happen again. Father, because we are sinners. And although we are trying to be sanctified, that we're working hard to pursue holiness, we will sin again. And that does not give us an excuse, but that gives us a reality. That the pages of Scripture are littered with grace and mercy, and grace and mercy, and grace and mercy for the ones that pursue it. So, Father, this morning when we feel the weight of our sin, for those in the room that have been playing games with their sin for too long, Father, would you convict our hearts? We'd be able to recognize that sin is sin. And it isn't just a sin that is harmless to anyone at first, it's an offense to you, a holy God. And secondly, it affects us as the body, that we are all members of one body. And when one bleeds, we all bleed. And Father, as we become convicted over that sin, would we feel the sorrow and weight of that sin? But for those in the room that feel that sorrow, that feel that weight, that feel that shame, and have for some time. Father, would they see you for a holy and righteous and good Father who desires to forgive us, who desires to run to us. Father, you, you don't wish for your sons and daughters to continue walking a life of sorrow and shame and isolation. Father, you desire for us to turn to you, to change the way that we view our sin and run to you. Father, you're waiting to embrace us and to celebrate with us. So for those that have been carrying this weight of shame for far too long, would this be the day, Father, would this be the day where they can understand the weight of their sin, but they can understand more the grace and mercy of our God? Would they experience a freedom of forgiveness this morning? And then when we all pursue the hard work of turning from our sin, regardless of the consequences, would we be more concerned about the creator over the created? Would we be more concerned about what you ask us to do and command us to do, not what others expect of us? Would we be more concerned about our righteousness and our approval? And lastly, for those that have been wrestling with their faith for a long time, that God has been stirring affections for himself in your heart, that you, you would not call yourself a believer yet. But you're here. And I'm telling you that's not an accident. That there's been conversations around you where God is drawing you to himself, and that is not an accident either. And that you've heard a message of forgiveness and of repentance, and that's not an accident either. That today is the day of salvation. That you felt the weight of your sin, the sorrow of your sin, and you're repenting, you're changing. And Christ is good, and his love endures forever, and he is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sin. So if that's you, we want to talk to you and we want to pray with you.
If you've been wrestling with sin and sorrow for a long time, we want to talk to you and we want to pray with you. And I know we've got things this afternoon and tests and works and travels, and, but for the next few moments, can we just sit in this holy moment of repentance and allow God to convict us and to lead us back into a celebration with him. So this is no form of manipulation or anything like that, but the guys are going to be playing up here. And as you choose to respond through worship, through communion, through talking in prayer, whatever you see fit, let's do it. But let's not waste what God is trying to do here in us this morning. So Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for making a way when there was no way. And this morning, would we all come in repentance to our holy and good God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So like I said, the band's going to continue to play. We'll be over here to pray. And uh, let's just wrestle through this together. Mm -hmm.